back up 21 years ago, we were serving probably about 70 people a month. This is our little first food pantry in here. Now, 21 years ago, we thought this was a big deal. <laughs> These are our little stickers of what we put. We've got, I see, condiments, main course, meal helpers, pasta. So these two shelves right here, this is our food pantry. <laughs> I always love the fact that we were open-palmed about if people are in need, the Bible says God wants us to help them. And I think that's how God has blessed us. It didn't matter if they came to this church. It was always if those in need, they're welcome to this church. We wanted to dive into learning more about how we could be a part of God's plan in coming alongside them and solving the bigger issue. We didn't want to be just a band-aid. What we decided to do was grow the teams to help the person in crisis. Sometimes the crisis was food, so we have a food pantry. Sometimes the crisis was job loss or finding a job, so we developed a job search team. But the beauty of all these different teams is that we are segueing these families in need through these different ministries to try to pour into them the skills, but more importantly, pour into them the love of Jesus Christ. Truly, it's been life-changing for me, and I'll never forget uh, the love and the generosity and the compassion I've been shown here ever. When I first came through the doors, not knowing what to expect, I knew, I knew it was a place of goodness. Our volunteers really sit with someone during a storm. It's not that we always have the answers, but like I said, it's always looking to the one that does together. So now, today, present time, we're serving about 1,400 people a month with food. So the numbers have really gone up and so has God's provision. It just helps me realize how blessed I am and that there's so many people out there that really need help right now. The chance for our church really to be the hands and feet of Jesus and matching from those who have plenty with those who are in need. So the new space it gives us a larger space now to hold the food that's coming in and to serve more guests. And I'm hoping that there won't be the long lines that we can bring people through faster and we have additional opportunity within those conversations to share the love of Jesus Christ. I would have never imagined when we had this tiny little closet that now we are this huge care center and that is only something that God can do. Partnering with Shepherd's Heart to feed the needy right here in our own neighborhood is easy, and we now have an exciting new way for you to get involved. Currently, we are seeing 1,400 people a month. The urgent and consistent need of our pantry is our non-perishable items. Starting today, we are looking for 500 Chapel Street families to become a Shepherd's Heart Pantry partner. What this means is committing to a monthly donation of one item of your choosing and filling one of our blue canvas bags with as much as that one item as you can. Maybe it's peanut butter. If that is what you pick, fill a bag with that one item. It's important to stick with your item and to be consistent with bringing in your donation every month. If you would like to be a part of this initiative, please visit our website at chapelstreet.church slash pantrypartner. 
you will find everything you need to know about how to become a partner. Signing up is easy and your help will go a long way to helping those in need. We are also looking for more volunteers to serve in the pantry. We have many different roles such as shopping with our guests, stocking shelves, or organizing inventory that comes in. If you are interested in serving, please contact Lisa Smarto, our volunteer coordinator at lsmarto at chapelstreetchurch.com. I hope you're as excited about Shepherd's Heart as we are. It's just remarkable to see all that God has done. And we just want to thank you to all of you who've prayed for Shepherd's Heart, served in Shepherd's Heart Ministries, given financially to it, uh, or in any way. We're just so thankful for what God is doing there. And I just want to let you know that as our church has grown, our capacity to do all the things that Aaron mentioned has grown as well. As we grow in our reach and our impact, God expands our capacity to meet more needs and make a greater impact for his kingdom. So let me just reiterate what you heard Aaron say there. We need 500 Chapel Street families to be pantry partners, to pick one item and fill up one bag a month and bring it in faithfully. We have corporate donations. We, uh, we have many generous partners, but 500 of our own families to say, we'll take care of this item every month. What a great, simple way for you to jump in and, be, and make a difference and work for justice. In this series, And Justice for All, we've been talking about practical ways that we can make a difference. Because when you look out at the needs of the world, it can be overwhelming. Well, here's a very simple, tangible way that you and your family can make a difference. And by the way, let me just say, if you've been encouraged or inspired by any of the stories we've been telling, and you'd like to find out more about how you can get involved in any of these ministries or ministries like them, contact Pastor Bruce McAvoy. He oversees all of our local and global impact, and he does a fantastic job. I know he'd love to, to meet you and to help you plug in and begin to serve and make an impact. Now let's pray and ask God to speak to us as we come to his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunities that you give us, your resources, your eyes to see the needs. And thank you for the chance to respond to needs. Thank you for the ministry of Shepherd's Heart and the many people that you're reaching, not just with physical food, but with the hope of your son Jesus. Lord, now we come to your word and we ask you to speak to our hearts. We ask you would help us to hear what you want to say to us, to listen and not to apply it to others, but to let you apply it to our own hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor John Kelly uh, preach to us about Jesus' heart for justice. And I just want to say again what a great blessing that was, how thankful we are for Pastor John and it coming here and preaching uh, to us the message God put on his heart. And if you'd missed that, boy, I want to encourage you, go back and listen to any of the sermons in this series but especially to that sermon last week by Pastor John Kelly of Chicago uh, West Bible Church. Now, I'm not much of a car guy. I know people love cars. Uh, cars to me are a necessary evil. Uh, you, uh, we've always bought used cars, usually very used cars. Uh, and buying a used car is risky. Every time I buy a used car, it's either from somebody that I know or trust. And when you buy off of Craigslist or something like that, it's, it can be a, a, a difficult proposition for somebody like me who doesn't know that much about cars. And so I always bring along my good friend, Willie. Willie Padilla is a great mechanic and a member of our church, and he's been an, help, an, an immense help to me. And I remember one time I was looking for a new car, and I'd look at different cars, and he'd gone with me, and I didn't find any good deals. And finally I found this Acura MDX, and it looked 
pristine and the price was low, the miles were low. I thought, this is a great deal. So Willie came with me. We met the owner in some parking lot of some restaurant somewhere and it looked immaculate. It looked just like the pictures, which isn't always the case. It was no dents, no scratches. Uh, Leather was nice inside. I thought, well, this is a really nice car and the miles were pretty low. And we drove it a little bit, and it ran great. And when I parked it, I was talking to the owner about you know, negotiating the price. And Willie looked under the hood and did something. Looked under, he pulled a cap off of something, I don't know what, looked at it, put it back, and stood quietly, walked over to me, and said, Pastor, can you come here? So I said, just a minute, to the owner. Walked over, and he said, you don't want this car, Pastor. I said, but it's so nice. He says, you don't want this car. There's a problem. So I walked back and I said, well, we're going to think about it. And the guy tried to negotiate. I said, well, I'll get back to you. We drove away and Willie explained to me that he had seen something in the, underneath the radiator cap that indicated serious trouble with the, with the engine. I would have bought that car and bought a lemon. And he saved me from that because he showed me that no matter how good it looked on the outside, there was a real serious problem on the inside that only he could tell. And when we come to the issue of justice... And specifically the Old Testament prophets and their, what God gives them to say to his people. It's as if they're saying, you look good on the outside. Everything looks shiny and nice on the outside. But there's a serious problem underneath that God sees. And he wants you to pay attention. He wants to show it to you. Not to shame you, but to help you change. To call you to something better that he wants for you. And this is, uh, you know, this is a theme and a message that runs throughout the Old Testament and the New. It's consistent. God repeats it over and over and over again. And there's a reason for that. I think it's because God's people have a hard time hearing it and, quite frankly, getting it. And in our series of the last four weeks, And Justice for All, there's been a, really a, a one central message, one central theme. And there's a reason for that. Because sometimes we need to have things repeated to us. I know I do. So let's review just a bit from our very first week of the series about what we're talking about when it comes to this issue of justice. First, justice is biblical, not political. That's important for us always to remember. When we hear highly politicized arguments, remember, this is God's idea. What does God say? Second, justice is about setting wrong things right. It's the desire in each of us to make things right that we see are wrong. But how do we know what is right? Well, what is right and just is rooted in the heart and character of God and is revealed to us in his word. Therefore, justice flows from the heart of God. If you take nothing else from this series, I hope that you'll take that away. That when you hear debates raging in our culture about justice, social justice, racial justice, economic justice, remind yourself, what does God say? What is God's heart for this situation? What does God's word say is right and just in this situation? Speaking of what God's word says, we're going to wrap up this series by looking at a relatively obscure uh, Old Testament prophet, one of the minor prophets uh, named Amos. Not because they're less important, but because they wrote shorter books uh, and there weren't as uh, big a name in, in those days as some of the, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth. Amos... Um, well, you'll know this passage from Amos chapter 5 from Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech. But Amos, we don't know much about him. He was a shepherd uh, and he was a fig tree farmer from a small out-of-the-way village, uh, Tekoa, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. We, get, we find out about this in Amos chapter 7. 
God calls him out of obscurity in this little out-of-the-way village uh, to be his instrument, his, God, deliver his word to his wayward people in the north. So he's living in the southern kingdom, far south, and he's got to travel all the way north to the northern kingdom, Israel, during the reign of a king named Jeroboam, about 760 B.C., Jeroboam, we can say a lot about him and none of it's good. He's a very wealthy and wicked king. And this is the time when Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom, Judah, the northern kingdom, Israel. So again, Amos is from the southern kingdom, but he travels north. So he's a stranger from this out-of-the-way village, and God says, I want you to go deliver my message. And it's not good news. Let's pick up and look at Amos chapter 5 and a few select verses, verses 4 through 7. For thus says the Lord, of Ho- the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice into wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to you, to the remnant of Joseph. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals." I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now I'm going to guess that that last line is familiar to you, even though you probably didn't know where it came from, at least some of you. But let justice flow like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous I Have a Dream speech. There's this phrase we hear over and over again in these texts we read, and it's the phrase, seek me and live. Hold on to that because it's going to be important for us and critical to understanding God's heart for justice and what's really going on in this passage. In verse 5, we get this, uh, this description of, do not seek Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba, formerly places of great spiritual significance. So Amos says, don't seek Bethel, Gilgal, or Beersheba. That seems 
so distant to us. What is he even talking about? Bethel literally means house of God. So these three places or regions were known for, they had spiritual significance to them in Israel's history. But what had happened is they'd become places of empty worship, idolatry. And God says, you won't find me there. King Jeroboam, you see, had basically turned, he had divided with the southern kingdom, and he basically corrupted worship and created his own religion, his own priests, his own feast days, his own temple, his own sacrificial system. And he kind of had just invented his own version of the worship of Yahweh on his own terms. And God is saying to Amos, tell the people, I'm not there. You won't find me there. Don't seek me there. We do this today. I talk, do-it-yourself, DIY spirituality is a real thing. People are Googling and cobbling together their own sense of what the world is and what they, what they believe the afterlife is and what life means. And we're making up our own spirituality, our own religion as we go, many of us. What does this have to do with justice anyway? Well, this is the root cause of injustice. This is the cause of injustice. Most of us are conditioned in our culture to think that the cause of injustice is it's economic, it's educational, it's political, it's societal, it's institutional in some way. And while all of those things play into it, fundamentally the Bible is teaching us that the root cause is spiritual. The root cause of injustice is not economic, it's not political, it's not educational, not fundamentally, it's spiritual. If you peel back all the layers... When people seek God on their own terms, when they make up their own way and their own worldview and their their own religion, they disconnect from the only source of truth and therefore of justice. So the cause of injustice is really false worship and not seeking God. Let's look at verses 10 and 12 again. They hate him who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him who speaks the truth. What's that about? Here's what he's saying. Those who speak the truth, and by the way, this phrase, the gate, this is a reference to, think about the town square, the city center. That's what he's saying. At the center of the city, those in the public arena who speak truth are hated, are despised. He goes on, therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy, there it is, in the gate. Once more. This is, this is God saying, I've looked under you the hood. I know you look good on the outside, but I look, I look under the hood and I see the problems. Let me help you see the problems because you're unwilling to see them. And this phrase that, that those who speak truth in the gate are despised, well, Amos has to be thinking about himself. Prophets were not well thought of in their day. He has to be thinking about himself, but that's also profoundly relevant for our current cultural moment, isn't it? The specific issue with Israel is that they have invented their own version of faith so that they can ignore the injustice in their nation. We see this happening in our culture today. We're living in a time when people are are reinventing definitions of marriage, of gender, of sexuality, of what is true, of what is right and what is wrong. And those who stand up and speak God's truth to some of these issues 
are often mocked, ridiculed, canceled, hated. In verse 11 and 12, he says that you trample on the poor, not just ignoring them, but actively harming them, trampling on them. Oppressive, taking bribes, turning the needy away. There's that phrase, he says, you've turned justice into wormwood. Wormwood literally just means bitter, bitterness. And, and, and he, we're told that we should hate what God hates and love what God loves. Let me look at verse 15 once more. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. There it is again, in the gate. It may be the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He says, hate evil, and love good. That sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Just hate evil and love good. Hate what God hates. Love what God loves. God hates injustice. God loves righteousness. And he tells us how to understand both in his word. Speak what God speaks. Again, the gate was the place in the ancient city where kings and rulers uh, gave uh, decrees, where they made public announcements, where people debated ideas, and where people went for judgment or justice. In fact, we think of a gate as just a rickety thing on hinges. But in the ancient cities, the city gate was massive, and there was gate houses and large towers that housed uh, guard houses where exchange of goods and economic things went on and where justice was dispensed. When, when Pastor Brian and I had the chance to travel with our wives to Israel probably six years ago now, we visited the ancient city of Dan, Tel Dan, Tel meaning archaeological mound. Dan is the root word for, uh, for the judge. It means the mound of the judge. They, they excavated this ancient city there uh, in the north part of Israel. And we toured the ruins, and we saw the ruins of the ancient city gate. And we were learning about this, and so we took a picture, the two of us, at the gate. There you see us standing. We're standing on the ancient pillar at the gatehouse. Behind us is the foundation stones that are thousands of years old to that ancient city of Dan. Pastor Brian holding his scepter there, and we're standing in in the gate. The place where people are supposed to go to find justice the place where they're supposed to go to appeal and plead their cause when they're oppressed, has become actually the place of injustice, taking bribes, casting away the needy, turning a blind eye to those who are being oppressed. Here's the point. False worship in the temple always leads to injustice in the gate. If your worship is not right, if you're not seeking God truly, It's always, if you're making it up as you go along, it's going to lead to injustice in the public arena. Remember back a couple weeks ago in Isaiah 58, we said that God connects worship with justice, and it goes both ways. False worship in the temple leads to injustice in the gate. To put it another way, you cannot seek God only in the church on Sunday. God connects worship and justice. In verse 14, we're told that, so do this so that the Lord will be with you as you have said. That's curious. As you have said. Meaning, they're saying God is with us, God is with us. And God's saying, I'm not. But if you will seek me and do justice, I will be with you, actually with you, in truth. Let's look at verses 4 and 7 of chapter 6. This is a a rebuke that comes after Amos 5. Uh, Woe to those who are doing injustice. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. 
and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Okay. We read that, and it sounds foreign to us. Beds of ivory, large couches, drinking wine in bowls. Who does that today? Well, let me try to reimagine this with some contemporary language for us. Woe to those who lie on their sleep number beds and stretch out on their massive oversized leather sectional couches, who eat meat from Fogo de Chao and watch ESPN all day, who drink $10 lattes and spend their time on Spotify making TikTok videos, shopping online for essential oils, but do not see and do not grieve over the hungry, the poor, the homeless, and the needy right next door. Perhaps if Amos were sent to the church today, he'd say something like that. Maybe it makes us squirm a little bit. It certainly did the people of Israel in his day. This brings us to the curse of injustice. On one level, the curse of injustice is injustice itself. It is a curse. It is a blight. It, it, it is a mark that a society is not right and wrong. People being treated unjustly, unfairly oppressed. That's itself a kind of a curse. And left unaddressed, it only ends in violence and oppression. You leave a, a group of people forgotten, marginalized, cast aside long enough, and eventually it ends in violence. It ends in oppression. Remember back to Luke chapter 4 and Isaiah 61 in our first sermon in this series when we looked at Jesus' pronouncement of the good news of the kingdom of God. Set the captives free. Sight to the blind. Liberty to the oppressed. Good news to the poor. Signs of the kingdom. But it runs deeper than this. The real curse is the absence of God. These people are claiming God's with us, God's with us, and God's saying, I'm far from you. I'm not with you at all. Romans chapter one makes this clear where Paul, the apostle Paul says they knew God, but they did not honor him as God, and they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their minds. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They knew God, but they refused to acknowledge him as their God in humility. Here's how Amos puts it. God speaking through the prophet in chapter 5, verses 18 through 23. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let's just go back one slide. Listen to what God says. I hate, I despise, I take no delight I will not accept, next slide, I will not look upon them, I will not listen. This is shocking stuff. This is the real curse of injustice. 
that God turns his face away, that God looks away and God rejects all this effort to be holy, to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, to prop ourselves up with our spirituality. This is a warning. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, it's a reference over and over again in Scripture referring to judgment day, the day when justice will come, ultimately speaking. Remember Pastor John Kelly told us last week that we must understand justice in the present day with the end in mind, that there is coming a day when all of us will stand before the judge, the judge of all the earth, and give an account. Think about that for a minute. The day of the Lord. There is a day coming when we will all give an account before him who judges in righteousness and true justice. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That judgment day is coming. Does that feel good or bad to you? Well, let me ask it this way. Are flashing lights in your rearview mirror a good thing or a bad thing? It kind of depends, doesn't it? It depends. If you're going 30 miles per hour over the limit, it's not a good thing at all. You're like, oh, no. How many of you have had this experience where you see flashing lights, you look at your speedometer, you realize I've been speeding, and you slow down and you hope he's not after you? But what if you're stranded on the side of the road on a dark winter night in the middle of nowhere and you have no cell service, and you see emergency vehicle lights? That's good news. That's a good thing. Rescue is coming. Restoration is coming. Help is coming. It all depends on your perspective. Now, Amos has a bit of a dark sense of humor here, doesn't he? He says, when this day comes, it's like you're going to run from a lion and then a bear's going to maul you. <laughs> I've been into watching uh, uh, When Animals Attack on YouTube videos lately, and it's, it's, it's a little bit of a dark humor here. You're running from the lion right into the claws and jaws of a bear. His point is this. The day of the Lord is coming. It's inescapable. And Israel, you are not ready for it. You're not prepared. You should not be longing for this or wishing for this. This is not good news for you unless you repent, unless you change, unless you seek him. We often hear a phrase today. I've heard this so many times in different contexts. You know, the phrase, something like this. You're on the wrong side of history or you need to get on the right side of history. And it's usually used to make someone, uh, to mean that somebody has the wrong view of a particular issue in, in our culture and they need to sort of update their thinking get with the times, and, you know, get in line with the current cultural moment. But cultural trends come and go. They change like the wind. It feels like this is, everyone has to believe this right now, but if you back up and look historically speaking, these things change like the wind. A cultural issue in, that we need to get on the right side of is not how we should understand this phrase, the right side of history. What we're here being told in this passage, that history is moving inevitably toward a certain end. Again, I go back and think of John Kelly when he said, every second that passes is, one, is closer and closer to that certain day. Acts 17.31 says the Lord has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness and true justice. There's a day coming, a fixed point. History is not cyclical. It's moving toward a destination, the day of the Lord. And for those of us that are in Christ and that believe that he's the righteous judge, that's good news. Because ultimately speaking, justice belongs to him. This brings us finally to the cure for injustice. We've looked at the cause and the curse, the cure. You know, I don't think Amos was a very popular guy in his day. In fact, I'm sure he wasn't. I don't think Amos had a massive Twitter following. 
fact, he was more likely to be canceled than to be a bestseller on Amazon. Because like all the prophets, in their time, their messages were not considered politically correct in ancient Israel. They weren't well-received. They were harsh. I confess, I don't know if I would have made a very good prophet in those days. There is, however, a prophetic aspect to preaching God's word. What I mean by that is this. God's called us to, to face what he says in his word and let his spirit apply it to us today. And I struggle with this sometimes. I, in, my, in my own self, I want to soft sell, avoid, uh, skirt around some of the harder issues. And the reason why is I know how it will land for some of you. I know some people watching this will, will hear it and it will be offensive. You'll, you'll not like it. You'll even reject it. Maybe you'll even reject me. Maybe you'll even reject God. And I don't want that to be the case. But it is too important to avoid. It is too crucial. And it would actually, honestly, it would be unloving for us to avoid this. So let's look at Amos 5 once more, verses 4 through 6 and then verse 14, which gives us hints at the cure for injustice. For thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not enter Gilgal, or cross to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord of God of hosts will be with you, as you have said. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We'll come back to that in a minute. This is the key we mentioned earlier. Seek the Lord and live. To seek something is to actively pursue it, to go after it, to move towards something. This is why Amos says later, seek good, not evil. If you're seeking good, you're moving away from evil. To move toward God is to move toward justice and away from injustice and evil. He's the goal. And now, seeking God is not just gaining more information about him. That's not what it means. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. This is how I tend to think about it. What can I read? What can I study? And that's part of it. But it's to seek him with all, who, all of who I am, including how I live, and as we learned last week, how I treat people. Okay, but how, how do we seek him? Well, first it begins with humility. To seek God begins fundamentally. The first step is the recognition that injustice is not just out there with them, but fundamentally in here, in me. The Bible calls this sin. So being humble enough to recognize that I am unjust, I am sinful, and then to recognize that I need to be set right. This is what the Bible means by righteous, made right, in right relationship with, because I'm not right. And then to acknowledge I'm powerless to do that. I'm unjust, I'm sinful, I need to be made right, and I cannot do that. That's the starting point. And that's hard for some. That's a big hurdle to get over. John Kelly again last week told us, everyone in heaven was at one time an enemy of God. That's the story for all of us. At one time, we were an enemy of God. But God, in his mercy, called us. Now, once more, Amos 5.24. But let justice roll down like waters, 
and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. These two words always go together in the Old Testament. They're companion words. Righteousness is the standard by which we measure justice, and justice is righteousness in action, lived out. They, they go together perfectly in God's vision for who we are called to be and who he is. Now, I know this verse sounds good. You can almost hear uh, it being preached uh, by Dr. King, and you can hear it rolling off the lips, justice rolling down like waters. It sounds good. Who wouldn't want justice to roll down like waters? Well, in his famous I Have a Dream speech, Dr. King said, we will not stop until justice rolls down. But the Bible is actually saying that God is telling us, I will not stop until justice rolls down. When I hear that verse, I think of an experience I had traveling to Africa with my wife to visit some of our Serve the World partners. We were in Zambia. We traveled to Zimbabwe, and we got uh, to visit Victoria Falls, just, just this natural wonder of the world, remarkable place. And I just want to show you a brief clip that I took standing on the edge of one section of these massive falls. Let's watch this little clip. I love how the, there's a rainbow perpetually there when the sun's out because the mist is so intense. And we turn the sound down because the noise is overwhelming. What, I, what, I, what you saw there is probably about less than a third of the entire falls. And it's beautiful from where we are standing. It's breathtaking. It's stunning. It's glorious. But you wouldn't want to be underneath that. Hundreds of feet down, all that water, all that pressure, it would crush you. It would destroy you. It's dangerous to be down there. So we read Isaiah 5.24, let justice roll down like mighty waters. Is that good news or bad news? Well, once again, it depends on where you're standing. Justice will roll down. It is coming. And it will crush us if we do not seek him and humble ourselves before him. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. And here's how I, we have to end this series on justice. There is one who took all of the injustice and sin on himself, and it did crush him. Isaiah 53 tells us he was crushed for our iniquities. In order that we might be rescued, ransomed, redeemed, and restored. His name is Jesus. He is the person of justice. He took all of the injustice of the world, pouring down on him at the cross, so that we would not be crushed, and instead we'd be set free. Because of him, the waters of God's justice don't crush us. Instead, they cleanse us, and they give us life. In John chapter 7, Jesus puts it this way, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The feast he's referring to is the time when the priest would stand on the temple steps and pour huge jars of water down the steps as a symbol of God's life-giving water and justice flowing. Jesus said, that symbol that you see is pointing to me. Amos, when he says in, in chapter 5, verse 24, that famous line, let justice roll down like mighty waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, he's talking about Jesus. He's living water. He is the righteous one. Justice 
poured out on him at the cross and through him into the world when he returns. This, friends, means that the cry of justice is not fix the world. That's what our culture says. We gotta fix this. Every election cycle, every bill that's passed or debated, every issue in our culture, we gotta fix it. We gotta fix it. Now, we should be engaged in the civic center, in the city gate, in, as God gives us opportunity. But fundamentally, the Christian cry of justice is not fix the world, fix the world, fix the world. The cry of justice is seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. That's the cry of justice. And that's my heart for all of you. There is no justice apart from him. It's a fool's errand. It's like chasing after the wind. It will never happen. It will always end up in oppression and tyranny and violence and more injustice. But seek the Lord. Let him redeem. Let the waters of his love flow into your heart and cleanse the injustice of your sin to wash all that away in you and then invite you into a life where he makes you an agent of his justice in the world. That's where it begins, and that's where it ends for us. Seek the Lord. Let's do that together as we pray. Father God, we thank you for these ancient words. And we ask that they would penetrate our hearts. That as you, through the prophet, confronted your people long ago, Lord, if there are things in our lives, in our worship here at Chapel Street, in our families, in our own hearts, that are unjust, that are displeasing to you, that you are turning away from. God, help us to see them and to turn toward you, to seek you and to find life. We thank you that we have the firm and secure hope that one day justice will roll down like a mighty water and righteousness will flow like a stream into our hearts, into this world, flooding all the universe with your goodness and glory. One day, every wrong will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. We look forward to that day. And in this day, when the world seems often dark and confusing and certainly full of injustice, God, teach us to look to you, to work for justice now with the end in mind. But above all, Lord Jesus, teach us to seek you, to humble ourselves before you, and to receive the grace, mercy, justice and righteousness that you provide. We praise you and we thank you. In your name, amen.